I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. wonder what it's like covering a World Cup as a working journalist. Here, Henry Winter, chief football writer of the Times, breaks it down in detail. Russia will be Henry's eighth major championship, and he talks us through the English national team's relationship with the press, which players light up the press room, why English footballers should get out of their hotels more, and the lengths journalists will go to to get a glimpse of training sessions. Yes, tree climbing is involved. It's very strange, the, uh, the eve of the tournament, because wary of injuries there's normally a circus there's normally the story the incident you know like cafe pacific or or whatever um and there's no real reference point until you've had the first game and then everything falls into place it's basically like the sort of doing the outside bit of a jigsaw you can sort of fill the rest of it in yeah the first yeah the first few days are a bit strange but we'll be we'll be spending time with the players Will be. I mean, I'll be trying to sneak off into St. Petersburg because it's an amazing, amazing city. I mean, Martin Samuel and I, we, we were in the same hotel in 2002 in um, Kobe. And we were getting up to like so 5.30 in the morning, getting on the first bullet train um, to Kyoto, wandering around all the temples and shrines for so like sort of four hours, getting the bullet train back and then hitting the press conferences when they started with England about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So, I, I mean, it's each to his own, but part of the reason for doing this job is to explore these amazing sure. places. Yeah. And first, they're amazing places, but also they are at a, often at their most welcoming because they want to sort of show off to the world, but also it's, you know, it's just a great party town um, when a World Cup is on. Obviously, there are issues, and you know, there might be issues in, in Russia with racism and hooliganism, but on the whole, they tend to be, like a year before the London Olympics, you know, London was, was, you know, there was carnage on the street. And yet, fast forward a year, and it, was, it went down as one of the greatest Olympics of all time. So, you know, events events are special, and it is, it's unique, and it's a great privilege to, to be there. But I do take that opportunity to go and have a good look around the country. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously a kind of conscious decision that you do take, because, I, I mean, I know that the demands, the time demands in journalists these days are enormous. So it's interesting that you were saying you, you had to go up so early and, get the, the, the time in before that to do a bit of um, sightseeing and soaking in the culture. So you do have to, I guess, go to these places with that mindset that I'm not just going to sit in press conference rooms, I am going to consciously try and break out and see a bit of the go. world. You've got to go. I mean, we yeah. can't lecture the players on, um, you know, sort of living in their bubble and then not going out on safari, not going out into... You know, what I always do, something that Mike Ingham, the, the former commentator of the BBC, taught me, um, he always took in his suitcase, he used to take about a season's worth of programmes, 
club programs. So, I mean, I go to what I know. I mean, it's only 130 games a year. So, a lot of those programs are giving way to people on, on the way out the ground or, or whatever. But, you know, I normally take around, I'll probably take around 70 to 80 programs hmm. out to the tournament, which gives me the excuse of buying clothes out there because I've got a half empty suitcase. Um, and, and just, you know, you just go places and you hand them out. This is just a reflection of how obsessed people are with English football. I mean, if you, if you have them in Manchester United, Liverpool, or England program, program for Wembley. They just, you know, just go crazy. So, yeah, you should do that, but it's a great opportunity to just go and see these places. I mean, I was, I don't sleep much, so four and a half, five hours a night is absolutely fine for me, as long as I can have a 20 minute kit somewhere during the day and we're on coaches or whatever cars, so that's easy to do. And I always get up early and, and go out for a run, just again to sort of see a a, a city or a town when it's sort of rubbing its eyes and waking up it's always fascinating yeah. so uh, yeah so it's, it's very selfish on my part I, I use this very much as an opportunity to, to explore a country yeah I mean that's interesting because there is actually a chapter in the book about the bubble when you talk about the players and these uh, how the players are so closeted and they stay in these high end hotels and there's a great quote from John Barnes. He talks about the players kind of missing out on the, I think it's the brotherhood of the World Cup, he calls yeah. it, which I thought was a great, yeah. a great phrase. But, um, I mean, how does that experience look now to players? I mean, is, it, is there an attempt by the FA to try and widen their experiences a bit and maybe get them away from the humdrum of, of just being in a hotel and playing PlayStation? Yeah, I mean, there are two elements to it. First, I think it's polite to the host. You turn up there, you don't just sort of disappear behind your high walls and all the room service. You actually go out and just I mean, for the PR reasons. Um, you know, England's a huge name. There'll be loads of people outside the hotel. But I think increasingly they are doing it, and they go to community events. And, you, know, you saw those pictures of Roy Hodgson dancing in, uh, in Rio. Um, and, you know, England should be doing things like that. England should go out and grow so from a PR point of view, it's good. It also means that uh, if England have embraced the tournament, have embraced the country, then those people from the host country in the, in the stadium when England are playing, which is often about a quarter of, quarter of the ground, will get behind England. So yeah. that's important. I mean, I've been to so many tournaments when the, the hosts have supported the opposition because they thought England was so arrogant and haven't sort of embraced the tournament. Also, I think it's good for the players just mm-hmm. to get out there. And it, it, we had a, this famous ruck with Capello at, um, at the World Cup in uh, 2010. It was saying they were in South Africa. He gave them a day off. And most of them stayed in the hotel. One or two went out golfing. Um, John Terry, to his great credit, and unbeknownst to anyone, just went and hosted a coaching session in, in one of the townships. Very quietly, just went off and did that. And, and fair play to him. I wish more of them had done that. But we had this argument with the FA and Capello. said, listen, you are so close to Robin Island. Why don't you just, just, you know, it's easy to get hop on the boat over there, walk around the island. I mean, when we went over there, the Dutch players were over there and the Italian wives and girlfriends were over there exploring. And I just think it's important for, for England players to be taken out of them to, just to experience it. You know, it's, it's, it's life stories as well, life experience as well. I mean, the final thing on that, as I say, is I remember talking to Southgate at Rome Airport when England played there in 97 that important qualifier where they just had to get the, uh, the, the point to go through against Italy and it was just always the, the usual sort of carousel bit waiting for the back so just talking to uh, Southgate and he said well, you know, what are you going to do when you're out here and I said well we've got a press going against the Italians and there's a 
do at the embassy and then obviously go off to the Coliseum and, you know, and just park and just have a good sort of wander around. And I, and I sort of politely said, well, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'll probably see the inside of the hotel and the, the outside of a training ground and a, and a stadium and then back to the airport. And he said something which I thought was sort of good and sad at the same time. He said, I go to all these amazing places. I want to go back there when I've retired and mm. actually experience them. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, you can't actually balance the two at the same time. I mean, Sol Campbell was probably the one player who I would always see of the English players always wandering around the town, wandering into town, having a coffee, having a look around the shops, having a look around the churches, you know, the, the, the site. Probably took him an hour and a half, you know, and he consistently, for England, was an outstanding player, so it didn't affect him. Yeah. And the one time, it really did annoy me. We had a bit of a rut with the players. 2002, when England were on tour in South Africa, and they were in Durban, and a flight was laid on in an invitation to go and see Mandela. And only half of the, uh, the squad went. Southgate was one of the ones who didn't go. Um, and I was just thinking, you know, you've got an opportunity to meet oh, the greatest man of all time. I don't know, I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's got to be up yeah. there just to go and see him. And, you know, he talks to Rio Ferdinand, and Rio Ferdinand was almost running down the, the, the runway to get on the plane because he wanted to go and see this great man and Beckham went as well. And I just thought they all should have gone. I mean, I would have just given everything to have gone on that trip to have met a great man, you know, to appreciate humility and understood what he went through. So I don't think that was England's finest hour in terms of half the squad not going. Yeah, I mean, I suppose a comparison point might be like a, an Olympic athlete who has the experience of staying in the village during that event and they, they soak up this big kind of melting pot of cultures and the life experiences and meeting other folk. And I guess, you know, if all that is shut off to you by just staying in... in uh, and yeah. a high end to tell, then it's, it's such a uh, a missed opportunity, really, isn't it? It's a really good point, that because talking to some of the England players, Tom Cleverley, um, and and some of the Welsh players like Ryan Giggs, who were in the um, in the t- Team GB at the Olympics, they loved being in the the village. They thought it was absolutely fascinating, and, and obviously they were in all of the basketball, mm. so they would go and watch them. And one of them was saying he saw Sir Chris Hoy on his balcony on his uh, bicycle machine, absolutely gunning it for an hour, you know, they'd walk off to breakfast and he'd be on the bicycle and they'd walk back and he'd still be on the bicycle. So they found that, that absolutely fascinating and I think it's good for them to learn from other sports as, yeah. as well as just to sort of open themselves up. So uh, yeah, I think the Olympics work well. Yeah, you were talking about um, before about the you know the sit downs at press conferences with players and the manager and stuff. And can you talk us uh, through the kind of access that that you get to, to players and management? Is that a daily thing? Are you getting a different player every day, or you know, and what what kind of um, access do you get to them? It's it's quite strange because I mean, I, during the season you have a vague stab at what the squad's going to be, and I try to go and see at least half of them individually at their clubs. So, the you know it's not such a shock when you're sitting down for them with with journalists in the in the summer at the tournament. You've already got that contact with a bit of background. Mm-hmm. Personally, I find the access from the FA is okay. It's improving. I think if they were a bit cuter, I've tried to point this out to them. If they put more players up, then there would be less of an, a daily agenda. Yes, it would sort of dilute the sort of the news focus bit if they put sort of two or three players up. Uh, which, to be fair to Southgate, he's, he is trying to do more and more. You know, we're, we're vaguely responsible. If a young player like Marcus Rashford comes out, he's not going to get grills. He's not going to be given a hard time. 
yeah. you know, we tend to reserve that for, for, for players that got to 20, 30 caps. And he's due a hard time because of form or something. I don't know what it is. So I think we are, we are vaguely responsible. If I look around the press box, there's no one there who doesn't want England to do well. Yeah. And there's no one there who doesn't want, um, you know, it's, it's particularly in the tabloids, commercially, and in terms of circulation, it's hugely important for them. The issue, of course, is at tournaments when news reports just come in. That is when it gets a little bit tense. It gets tense between the press and the, and the players, and it gets tense between the front end of the book and the back end of the book in, in, in tabloid terms. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One of the, um, the parts of the book that jumped out for me was... Um you're talking about the relationship um, with the press, and, and you were saying they've obviously come a long way since you know the days of depicting managers as you know various vegetables. But um, yeah. Gary, Gary Neville's quotes are fantastic because he he talks about um, a much more analytical press corps now, and there's, there's much more interest in the technical aspects of football and, and the discussions around them. And that that was I thought that was really interesting to to show how actually the press has evolved as. As the, the as football, I guess, has, has evolved in the last decade. I, I think ultimately we reflect fans' interests, and I think fans definitely have become more tactically aware and tactically interested. And Gary Neville is is a key one of the key reasons for that because he is he's almost made tactics sexy with his box of kicks. I mean, he's you know he's fascinating to watch that Monday night um, thing with him. is is, is brilliant. And, and Carragher too. So I think they've been driving the way and we've had to respond. I also think social media's had a part to play as well because I can't, I have to be accountable nowadays. I mean, I'm probably one of the sort of softer, uh, journalists, but, you know, if I get something wrong or if I, you know, people don't agree with my viewpoint, rather than being in my ivory tower, which a lot of journalists were for many years, I get 2,000 people calling me a posh twat. So, you know, I think you're more aware of, you know, just, well, even more aware of just making, just thinking more, getting, getting things right, maybe focusing on a, a story and a tactical story. Like today, for example, I've got, I went to talk to Jordan Pickford yesterday. It was absolutely fascinating, but there were some quite newsy lines on what he thought of uh, Sam Allardyce and what he thought of David Moyes. Mm. But I've done a sort of more, or more tactical piece because he was brilliant on the art of penalty saving. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe that's a reflection on how it uh, evolved. There are a lot of younger journalists now as well who are quite tactically savvy as well. 
but even the press team has stopped playing four four two and knocking it long. It's even, <laughs> that, that, that might be a fitness thing. We're trying to keep hold of the <laughs> yeah. ball a little bit more. We're not we're not we're not chasing down the channel so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's interesting. I know I know as a, a journalist myself that sometimes if a certain player will walk into a room, you think brilliant because they understand the demands of the press and they, they can accommodate them so well. You know, Very often we refer to good talkers. Um, mm. Who would you see in the England squad when they walk into the room, you think, oh, great, you know, this is going to be a really good football conversation? Uh, Vardy's great fun. I mean, short answers, but they're all value and they're all fun because he, he doesn't really care. I like Eric Dyer. I think he's a good talker. Danny Welbeck's a great talker. Mm-hmm. Jordan Pickford. Is is good as well. He's pretty up front. They're, they all are on the whole. Maybe they haven't been so sort of scarred by England yet. So, um, so so they are. Who's got I me? Mean, John Stones is, I think, a little bit wary in the press. But if you do, he does trust you and sits down with you. He's you know he's he's good as well. Carl Walker's done some brilliant stuff for the Sunday newspapers recently. Yeah. I think he's he's excellent. Danny Rose has got one or two journalists that he he trusts and opens up to. Um, Harry Maguire. You know, he's a, he's, he's a very good talker, you know, super bright string of GCSEs. Um, we'll keep away. Yeah, Nick Pope, you see, a lot of these players have got backstories yeah. from you know, a bit of non-league, like Nick Pope and um, obviously Jeremy Vardy. They've lived a bit in the outside world, yeah. so they're more sort of prepared to, uh, to, to engage. Um, what you do find with uh, players now, particularly the ones who, who love their technology, if they're photographers around, they'll sidle up to the photographer and get a few sort of tips on which cameras to buy and you know what to do. Like, like Eric Dyer is a is a budding photographer, and he's all if there's a photographer around, if I go and interview him, I'll get half an hour talking to him, and then the, the photographer will probably be detained another hour because Eric wants to sort of drill him on tips on lighting. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, so I was like Joe Hart. But Joe Hart was very wary of the press. In fact, Joe Hart was so wary of the English press, he used to bring a tape board and, and tape the whole wow. press conference just and then put it on his website just in case. Not so much he was misquoted, but there was just all the emphasis. You know, he would do, he would talk for, say, maybe 20 minutes, with one minute of it would have been about his relationship with Pep, and he was always very respectful. The other 19 minutes would be on the arse of Bolke thing. Mm-hmm. But with a lot of the media, it's a one minute on Pep which gets the headlines. Yeah. Which is so I can understand why he got um, uh, frustrated. Jordan Henderson again is I think he's, you know he's really developing as a, a talker. I've not interviewed Trent Alexander-Arnold, but everyone says what a lovely kid, great backstory, community work he does. So I, to my view, there's no such thing as a bad interviewee, only a bad interviewer. And it's if someone isn't necessarily you think it's going to be the most forthright. And you do more research on them, you ask them more interesting questions, and you somehow try to open them up. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't going to ask you about this, but I was really taken by the, the James Milner piece that, that you wrote just prior, prior to yeah. um, the Champions League final at the weekend. And um, the stuff about him speaking Spanish to his kids was just such a fascinating insight into a guy um, who has been a bit um, stereotyped almost uh, over the, yeah. the past few years. But, um, but how how does that how do you find the key to the door with that situation? Is it, is it, does that just come up in general conversation that you're chatting away and then he'll offer something like that, or do you kind of prepare uh, for that? We were in Spain. I speak a bit of Spanish, but actually there weren't any Spanish people around, so it wasn't sort of a way to board over and I sort of thank them in Spanish and you know ask them about the you know how Malaga were doing. It was 
I think, you see, with Liverpool, Liverpool has a fantastic climate because they've got best media operator in the business called Matt McCann. Yeah, yeah. And before I sat down with James Milner, Matt, in a very sort of relaxed way, just sat down and just talked about it. So, listen, I love James Milner. You know, he's such an interesting guy. And I actually think he mentioned the Spanish thing to him. Mm. So I then mentioned it to Milner. And then he sort of just opened up on it. Yeah. Um, and in fact, it was so interesting. Obviously, I had some lead off on it. So I thought it was, it was quite sort of eye-opening. And then I always ring up at 6 o'clock to the office to say, are there any queries on the piece? And just out of interest, what's the headline? And they'd, they'd gone on the sort of Spanish line in the headline. But then they but then added, I started learning it when I went to City. And I said, well, listen, it's a big piece on Liverpool. Yeah. Um, Liverpool have been incredibly helpful inviting me out to my bear. Can we take the city part out of the headline and just do more on... So they just expanded that, you know, my, my kids, I speak to my kids in Spanish. Uh, but I actually thought Milner was going to say, oh, I've married a Spanish woman, because often you have that with, with, with couples. One speaks to them and, you know, they each speak to them in their own language. Um, but now I think she's true Yorkshire like James. So, um, yeah, it was quite... I was surprised that so many people were interested um, in, in that language thing. But then I've always, I've known Milner since he was 16, you know, and I, I knew that there was an incredibly bright individual there. And actually I thought, if I'd ever become a famous footballer, I would probably have been tempted to take the James Milner, which is a very intelligent approach, to deflect, praise, media interest, because then you can get on with having actually a quite civilised life without getting caught up in the circus. Sure. And I put that to him and he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely the way I've played it. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting that you mentioned Matt McCann. We've had some contact with Matt over recent months from the production of Graham Hunter's podcast, and he's a yeah. fantastic guy, but Matt understands how he wants the story of the club to be told. Yeah. And I think that's that's the absolute key to, to that kind of role. And I guess just to kind of bring it back to, to England and the FA, how do you find... Do, do you find that there is a kind of philosophy... Um, or a, a general approach to how press relations are conducted. Do they do they want to do they try and pitch things in a certain way that that that's going to reflect well on the player and the press? They're, they're, they're paranoid, the FA, and the, the paranoia, which is part of the broader club versus country battle, they're paranoid of the clubs. So they will sit slightly twitchy on the edge of the interview, and the moment it strays into club area. Mm. They say, well, we're here to talk about England. And I always say, well, I say, the reason why X player is here is because he's been playing well for his club. So we've got every right to, to ask him about his club form, if he's got a change of manager. And I think they do accept that even more. Mm-hmm. And also, I don't think players should be protected because this, again, is part of the sort of general bubble that they inhabit. Was actually, they need to step out of the bubble to man up. And if they're going to take criticism from us, um, and if they want to give it back, absolutely fine. Um, but then it, it's all part of this making them able to take more responsibility on the pitch, which might give them a chance of, sort of progressing through a knockout stage. Yeah. So I think that's, a, you know, I always say to the FA, so why are they cuddle them? You yeah. know, they, you know they, they may be young, but they're, you know, they're a third of their way through their careers. You know, we're, we're not, you know, not going to savage a, a, a young player, but we've got every right to ask about clubs and whatever. Um, and actually, most of the players, yeah, I mean, we had a couple of incidents yesterday with two of the players who put up from the World Bank of Pickford, who had issues with their clubs during the season with managers. Right? Um, and they were brilliant. They had their both hands at it really well. So, but it is, the problem lies with the, with the FA. 
you know, partly lies with the media and, you know, we do paint everyone as either hero or villain, whereas the truth is always somewhere between. But the FA's paranoia has, has gotten away a lot. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, we published uh, Graham Hunter's book in Spain a, a few years ago, and that, that was really interesting in terms of the cultural contrast between how, for example, the Spanish FA would handle media relations and access and all that sort of stuff. And Graham was able to get, uh, as were you know many Spanish journalists, uh, much closer to the action. You know, much closer to training sessions, um, be, yeah. be able to kind of soak up. The, the atmosphere of the squad and pick up and even little things like how players relate to each other, how they relate to the manager. Um, are you able to do any of that like with, with yeah. England? I don't think the FA has ever recovered from all played out by Pete Davis <laughs> and, 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 and Pete's a mate of mine and he did an absolutely brilliant yeah. job and it yeah. was just an amazing book but actually the book is too good and the access the FA and England right. gave him was, was just so good. Yeah. Um, so I think they were a little bit scarbled. The other thing with the FA is that they've got their own website to feed. They mm-hmm. don't necessarily want all the good content to go elsewhere. Yeah. They would much rather have it for them for, for that pure commercial Talking about um, observing training, there's a fantastic tale in the book where you talk about the, the lengths you go to to try and uh, get yeah. an insight into the, the, the starting 11. So can you tell us about that? Well, I mean, 2006 was, was funny because I, I was at school in Munich as a kid, so I speak German. So I said to the guys, to be honest, and this may sound quite pathetic, but I do love going and watching training. Yeah. And if England aren't prepared to let us go and watch, then we will find ways of, of going and watching. Um, and I was just wandering up and down through the Black Forest. There were um, German policemen there. I was talking to them in German. We were Scots. Alison Ordnant, wondering on, and so yeah, so watching, um, watching fire training. You know, we're not giving trade secrets away. What we're doing is just getting a feel of what's going on in training and making sure that we've, we've got an idea of who the, um, who the England starting 11 is going to be. Now, there are three ways of doing that. You can ring up agents, you can ring up players, or you can just find out via the, um, via the training ground. And as Roy Hodgson says, Roy Hodgson just rolled his eyes at FA Paranoia about um, supposedly the, you know, the press spying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, well, we always know the opposition team. I mean, mm-hmm. they always know the opposition team. So, uh, but no, there was one hilarious incident in 2006 when my colleagues, he climbed up a tree and he's, he was like a sort of eight foot up this tree, he realised there was someone above him who was from the Ecuadorian FA. I mean, he was, he was, he was such a bad spy, he had an Ecuadorian FA top on. Uh, and he was, he was sort of spying on training. But, um, yeah, the, look, the FA get paranoid about it, but they would be, you know, if they opened up training a bit more, I mean, they only open it up for 15 minutes and then we get kicked out. I mean, the Brazilians are, you know, a lot more open. I mean, England's set pieces, did they really want to hide their set pieces and we'd spied on them at the Euros and saw Harry Kane taking corners. And I'd gone back to, to all the guys and said, oh, yeah, I've been watching training and Harry Kane's taking corners. So they've absolutely laughed me out of the place. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're not particularly sophisticated with our, uh, with our dead balls. So um, I know, uh, you know the players find it quite funny. Um, mm-hmm. One or two of the coaching staff was a bit, got a bit annoyed by it, but... It is important for us as journalists to know what the starting eleven is. 
Yeah, absolutely. Just finally, uh, in terms of the overall experience of covering a World Cup, do you, do you find it's enjoyable or do you find it's a drag? Do you know what? I love every second yeah. of it and I find it really difficult afterwards. Um, I have about 36 hours of mourning for a tournament because it's, I love every second of it. Because I'm very fortunate because I will have probably half of the tournament will be around England and I love the whole... You know, the circus, the soap opera, the football, the players, the management, just everything about it. I live and breathe that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then England go out normally around the halfway stage of the tournament. And then I can go and watch Brazil and Germany. So I'm very fortunate like that. So it doesn't drag. And I would say for 36 hours after the tournament, I'm impossible. I mean, my wife always says, just go and stay in a hotel, um, almost a decompression chamber at Heathrow, um, for 36 hours after you come back, and then we'll re- release you into a polite society again. Because I, I do, I, it is, it is morning. I know that sounds over dramatic, but it is. I, I love tournaments. They're all. Be, this will be my eighth. They're all completely distinct. Um, well, not nor- normally with England. It's normally the same story with England. But just there's something incredibly special about it and it is a privilege to be allowed to go to another part of the world and spend five to six weeks just exploring the country and then going watching football matches at the same time. Thanks to Henry for doing this interview, 50 Years of Hurt, the story of England football and why we never stop believing, is out now in paperback and ebook. Subscribe now on iTunes and listen to the rest of our World Cup series and all of the first season of Between the Lines, featuring interviews with Simon Cooper, David Winner, Rory Smith and more. Follow us at Backpage Press on Twitter and sign up to our mailing list at backpagepress.co.uk to get these episodes sent directly to your inbox. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.